0: Carter's murder for hire? Annie Maud Carter had much more to say about her association with Leo Frank and his crew, and revealed damning information that scholars of the case have heretofore ignored. Not only had this black woman publicly repudiated the letters Frank claimed she had exchanged with James Conley, but she revealed in a sworn affidavit that Frank's friends had actually tried to recruit her to poison Conley. She named two individuals, National Pencil Company stockholder Oscar Pappenheimer and Milton Klein, of Daniel Klein and Son, the B'nai B'rith member, who publicly took credit for hiring William J. Burns. Even the New York Times, a certified member of the Frank team, had to report in its May 6, 1914 issue on the, quote, poison plot against Conley, end quote, quote, one day while walking past Frank's cell block one of Frank's friends came up to end quote, "Carter" quote, and asked her if she wanted to get rich right quick She said that the man asked her if she ever visited Jim Conley's cell She said she answered that she was going there then Thereupon according to the affiant end quote, "Carter" quote, "the friend of Frank said in effect take this vial And be mighty careful of it. Don't get any of it on you. It is dangerous. Just put a drop in the food that is given Conley. The woman said she replied that she did not want to have anything to do with killing anybody, and that Frank's friend said that she should not care anything about one Negro less, especially who had put the Fagan crime on Frank. She said she did not know this man's name, but that he had black hair and wore his hat pulled down over his eyes. She said she had seen him in company with a man by the name of Pappenheimer and that he had come to Frank's cell with the Klein boys. End quote. None of this was ever pursued, either legally by the Georgia justice system or academically by students of the Leo Frank case. Many scholars are willing to validate her, quote, Negro testimony, end quote, about the letters before Carter repudiated them in open court, but not her explicit testimony under oath about a murder-for-hire plot by the friends of Leo Frank. All of Georgia watched this entire Burns burlesque unravel before their eyes in the retrial hearing for Leo Frank. Judge Benjamin Hill did not even need to hear arguments from prosecutor Hugh Dorsey before he denied Frank a new trial and set in motion an investigation into the tactics and methods of William J. Burns. More Burns chicanery. By May of 1914, Annie Maud Carter had pulled the bandage off a festering wound, only to expose an underworld operation of major proportions. So many witnesses, dredged up by Burns's dragnet, were so plainly fraudulent that scholars today are embarrassed to mention them. The quote, respected white preacher. End quote, named C.B. Ragsdale, admitted that his, quote, two darkies, end quote, were complete fabrications and that Frank's team had paid him to lie. Quote, they were just handing money out, end quote, charged the clergyman. He had received $200 for his, quote, darkies, end quote, story, a half year's pay for most of Frank's factory employees. A black woman named Mary Rich operated a lunch stand near the factory. On the day the murder was discovered, police found the basement door to the alleyway had been unlatched, and they later charged that Frank had unlocked the door to enable Conley to get in to burn the body of Mary Fagan. Burns claimed that he had an affidavit from Mary Rich, admitting that she had served Conley at 2.20 p.m. on the day of the murder after seeing him emerge from the alleyway next to the factory. But nobody told Mary Rich, and she charged that the story was invented by none other than the local rabbi David Marks and Frank's own wife Lucille. Mrs. Frank said to me, "If you will sign this affidavit, you will take the rope from around my husband's neck." Two other blacks charged that the Frank team simply forged their names on falsified affidavits. Yet another white woman detailed the efforts made, quote, to get her out of town, end quote, efforts that included an offer of $100 and a marriage proposal from an agent hired by Frank and using an alias. Much of the money, when it could be traced, seemed to come from Herbert J. Haas, Frank's other Jewish lead attorney, who was the conduit for Lasker's secret funds. But that is not all. Some of William J. Burns's ham-fisted attempts to pressure and bribe witnesses on Frank's behalf occurred at Governor Slayton's law firm and in Governor Slayton's own office. In the end, Leo Frank's perjurious house of cards collapsed very publicly and completely. His manufactured, quote, revelations, end quote, only fortified everyone's confidence in the original guilty verdict and layered upon that conviction new felonies, expanding the associated pool of criminals to include even more friends, associates, and hires of Leo M. Frank. William J. Burns so completely botched the task that he and his agents soon faced charges of subornation of perjury, quote, "...hiding a Negro witness," end quote, "...bribery, inventing evidence, and buying testimony." Illegalities that led to a revocation of Burns' license to practice in Atlanta. Proving himself to be the ultimate recanter, a remorseful Burns appeared in court and, quote, distanced himself from, end quote, the Annie Maud Carter letters, in effect admitting they were faked. Attorney Reuben Arnold also repudiated the letters, saying in court, quote, Conley isn't a pervert, end quote. Quote, I don't believe there has been any perversion in the case on the part of Conley or of Frank. Georgia's favorite son, Tom Watson, was monitoring all this in the pages of his weekly Jeffersonian. He mercilessly mocked the great detective, whom he renamed simply the jackass. I think I said that Burns might trace a lost cow. If she had a bell on her neck and toted a red light lantern on her tail. I now take that back. I was too hasty. My revised opinion is that Burns couldn't even find a lost cow unless she were equipped with a wireless telegraph outfit and regularly flashed out SOS signals every time she stopped to make water. Louis Marshall despaired at the collapse of his team's efforts. Privately calling Burns' methods quote ridiculous, end quote, and quote farcical, end quote. And quote. quote, a burlesque, end quote. He said he was, quote, disgusted, end quote, that Burns brought the case, quote, to this point of destruction. End quote. Tellingly, Marshall was not repudiating Leo Frank's blatantly racist defense strategy. He was simply scoring Burns' incompetence in carrying out his part of their racist plot. Even attorney Herbert Haas, ignoring his own role as Lasker's bagman in the fiasco, had to admit that quote, "Burns's connection with the case has done us irretrievable damage." End quote. The sleazy conduct of Leo Frank's private eyes Some of the Burns operatives were forced to stand trial for just a portion of the avalanche of illegalities that included fraud, bribery, perjury, forgery, and even murder-for-hire. None of the higher-ups orchestrating the treachery—Lasker, Haas, Ox, Marshall, Marx, Frank—were ever held accountable for their roles in the bizarre episode. Only Tom Watson held them up for public ridicule in his monthly magazine. Decidedly, it is the blackest record of systematic effort to save the guilty, destroy the innocent, Debauch witnesses, manufacture evidence, and create a public sentiment in favor of a fictitious case. End quote. Judge Hill scored the quote, famous sleuths end quote, who were seeking quote, not truth but money and notoriety. End quote. He called them quote, a menace to justice end quote, and declared, quote, These men do not detect crime. Rather, they encourage crime. They are a menace to the peace of the state and an obstruction to the administration of justice. Albert Lasker finally admitted in 1937 what everyone already knew in 1914 Burns cost me $25,000 out of my own pocket, and, by God, he put in as much perjured stuff as the other side did before we finished. I don't say he did, and he had his operatives. I guess. You can run that sort of a thing, until it embarrassed our case at times. End quote. Lasker is here admitting to a serious felony for which he was never indicted. Judge Benjamin Hill talked tough, assessed fines, but in a surprising move, he dismissed some of the charges and ordered no prison time for Burns's gaggle of operatives. Turns out. Lasker may have persuaded Judge Hill into granting Frank's felons an undeserved leniency. In a private letter to cohort Adolf Ox, dated March 12, 1914, Lasker seemed to be assessing the opportunity for judicial bribery. Quote, The situation looks serious, for I found that Judge Hill comes up for re-election in June. He has a large family to support, and it is but four months since he resigned a position in a higher court where the salary was $4,000 a year to fill a vacancy by appointment in this lower court at $5,000 a year. This would not seem to augur well. Quote. There is no proof that any money changed hands, but it is hard to believe that Lasker's blatant query about the judge's personal finances could have had any other purpose. Below is a chart that catalogs the illegalities which have come to light that can be directly attributed to the Leo Frank legal team. Catalogue of Corruption Dishonest, Unethical, Criminal Behaviors of Leo Frank's Defense Team Much of the data in this chart was drawn from the article, W.J. Burns and Dan Lehan summoned by Solicitor Dorsey to the Frank retrial hearing, end quote. Atlanta Constitution, May 2, 1914. The article's subtitle of this pro Frank paper is telling Forgery, bribery, trickery, intimidating witnesses, threatening to expose scandals of girls, all made against men who are working for the defense. The editor might easily have added conspiracy to murder a witness. Burns never produced his promised report and reportedly burned all his files on the Leo Frank case. Charge Bribery of George Epps Description The 14-year-old Epps testified that Mary Fagan told him that Leo Frank had made sexual advances toward her. Burns' private detective, C.W. Burke, offered him money to change his testimony. Charge Attempted Bribery of Marie Karst Description The former National Pencil Company employee had testified at trial that Frank's, quote, character for lasciviousness was bad, quote. Karst now testified that Burke and Leo Frank's factory employee, Lemmy Quinn, had come to her home with liquor, intending to get her to agree to come to the office of Frank's lawyers. She refused. Then Burke met her on the street and offered her a job for $2 a day. Quote, Burke wanted me to go around and see the girls who had sworn for the state in the Frank trial and see if they would not change their evidence. He told me that what I swore to did not bind me because I was not cross-examined and said it was not recorded. I saw several of the girls and they told me they would not change their evidence because what they swore to was true. Burke wanted me to see Montine Stover and talk with her and see if I couldn't get her to change her evidence. He wanted me to go down and live with Montine and pick her. My mother refused to let me do it and would not let me work for Burke anymore. End quote. Charge. Attempted bribery of Albert McKnight. Description. McKnight Husband of the cook at Frank's home was offered money and employment at high wages. If he would swear that the injuries he had sustained in a railroad accident was caused by a beating by Atlanta detectives. Charge Attempted Bribery of Aaron Allen Description William Burns brought Allen, a black man, to Chicago for several days, pressuring him to swear that Conley had confessed to him that he alone had committed the murder. Allen refused, despite large sums of money left on a table that were his for the taking. Charge. Blackmailing of Carrie Smith. Description. Private detective C.W. Burke threatened Smith with exposure of alleged misconduct at her place of employment, if she did not change her trial statement, in which she testified of Leo Frank's bad character. Smith, a factory employee for three years, swore that she was offered $20 to sign an affidavit favorable to Frank, $500 in today's dollars. The person bribing her was a, quote, Mr. Maddox, end quote. Very likely Burke, using an assumed name, who made the offer in Governor Slayton's private office. She was also expected to try to stealthily become a roommate of Monteen Stover's to persuade her to change her testimony. Charge. Attempted bribery of Mrs. Maggie Nash. Description. Mrs. Nash swore that Burns had tried to get her to change her testimony about seeing Frank go into a private room with a female employee. She refused, telling Burns, quote, he might try 100 years, end quote, but she would never do it. Charge. Attempted bribery of Helen Ferguson. Description. Factory employee Ferguson testified that Frank had refused to give her Mary Fagan's pay envelope. It was this refusal on Friday evening that compelled Mary to go to Frank herself to collect her pay the next day, whereupon she was murdered. Ferguson swore that Jimmy Wren, who worked for C.W. Burke, offered her $100 and all her expenses, $2,500 in today's dollars, if she would leave Atlanta. She said that Wren tried to persuade her to marry him and introduced her to his quote, father. End quote. He quote, said he wanted to marry me but wanted me to sign an affidavit first. End quote. Wren's quote, father end quote, was Frank's private detective, C. W. Burke. Charge Attempted bribery of C. B. Dalton. Description. At the trial, Dalton confirmed Conley's account of Frank's sexual encounters. He swore that C.W. Burke had offered him $100 to sign a paper, quote, to be used before the pardon board to keep Frank from hanging, end quote. He said he had gone to Dublin, Georgia to do some work for a bank, and two Jews came to him and offered him $400 to leave the state. They came to him several times and renewed the offer, stating that they meant to get Frank a new trial. Charge. Forged evidence. Description. Annie Maud Carter was used by Burns' agents to agree to claim to have received obscene letters from James Conley. Charge. Conspiracy to murder James Conley. Description. According to Annie Maud Carter, quote, A Jew came up. Mr. Oscar Pappenheim was there too. And offered a large sum of money if she would put poison in James Conley's food. Charge Forged evidence. Description Frank's team forged the time slip of factory night watchman Newt Lee to make it appear that he had time to leave the factory on the night of the murder. Charge. Planted evidence. Description. A shirt wiped in blood was planted at the home of Newt Lee, a deception that made him the target of lynching threats. Lee was fully exonerated, and it was established that the bloody shirt was planted by Frank's legal team. Charge. Planted evidence. Description. Wooden Club, Found by Pinkerton detectives in a previously searched area of the factory was claimed by Frank to be the murder weapon used by Conley. Factory employee Wade Campbell, however, testified at the trial that on the day of the murder, Frank had a club which he used to play with in his hand and he was carrying it around. Charge Planted Evidence Description an ADL report addresses the, quote, discovery, end quote, of Mary Fagan's pay envelope by a detective hired by Frank. Quote, the mysterious pay envelope bearing not a single fingerprint of any kind, even a smudge, had to have been a plant, end quote. Charge. Bribery of Reverend C. B. Ragsdale. Description. The former pastor of a local church testified he was paid $200 for signing a false affidavit claiming he had overheard Conley confess to the murder. Charge. Forged letter of the dead Judge Roan. Description. A letter that appeared after the death of trial judge Leonard S. Roan, expressing doubt about Frank's guilt was believed by his family and solicitor Dorsey to be forged by Frank's legal team. Charge. Forged affidavit. Description. Ivy Jones testified that Conley was not drunk on the day of the murder. Jones said his affidavit, to the contrary, was forged. Charge. Forged affidavit. Description. Ruth Robinson testified that Frank made an indecent proposal to her, but her testimony was retracted in a false affidavit by C. W. Burke. Charge. Forged affidavit. Description. Rabbi David Marks and Mrs. Leo Frank approached black food vendor Mary Rich and tried to force her to sign a false affidavit that helped Frank's alibi. She refused, but they submitted it anyway. Charge. Forged affidavit. Description. Mrs. J. B. Simmons was induced by C. W. Burke to sign a false statement against Solicitor Hugh Dorsey. Burke brought her a basket of fruit in payment. This list is by no means the full extent of the criminal operations of the agents working on behalf of Mr. Leo M. Frank. Despite the scope and seriousness of these crimes, Most were not adjudicated, and those responsible received only fines and no jail time. Burns had his license revoked. Burns' cohort, Dan Lehon, was expelled from Chicago Police Department for bribery and conduct unbecoming of an officer. Burns' agents, C.W. Burke and Jimmy Wren, appear to have gotten away scot-free. As incredible as all this sounds, Burns parlayed this sleazy resume into a directorship of the Federal Bureau of Investigation from 1921 until another scandal forced him to resign in 1924. Under oath and before Judge Hill, Solicitor Hugh Dorsey finally had the opportunity to question William J. Burns. Quote, During your investigation, what criminal act did you ever discover that Conley had committed? End quote. Answer. Quote, I don't know that I have discovered any. End quote. Leo Frank's Massive Criminal Insurgency In 1914, Leo Frank's forces unleashed a wave of criminality, the scope of which is unprecedented. The details of the operation were captured in rare fashion in this article. Beginning of newspaper article. Quote, Return of Negress Ordered by Judge." End quote, by Reporters of the Atlantic Constitution, May 5, 1914, covering the trial of the agents and operatives of the William J. Burns Detective Agency. Return of Negress Ordered by Judge. If Anna Maud Carter is not in Atlanta within 5 days, her evidence will not be considered. Charges of bribery, perjury, and coercion of witnesses will be thoroughly investigated by Solicitor Dorsey and then a number of prosecutions will follow, according to a statement by the Solicitor on Monday night. Quote, prosecutions will certainly follow later on, end quote. He said, quote, It will be my duty as a prosecuting officer to see that justice is done. Outside of that, I can say nothing else, except that the scope of my prosecutions... Will include all who have been guilty of crookedness, even the men higher up. End quote. Judge Ben Hill demanded of Leo Frank's defense yesterday afternoon that Anna Maude Carter, the Negro witness, be returned to the jurisdiction of the court within five days. He declared that if she were not brought back to Atlanta within that time, he would decline to consider her evidence or any evidence in which she was involved. Quote, Detective Burns admitted before me, end quote, said Judge Hill, quote, that he had sent Anna Maud Carter from the jurisdiction of the court. I want an order drawn commanding Anna Maud Carter to be returned to Atlanta in five days, or I will not consider any of the evidence in which she is concerned. End quote. A few minutes later, Judge Hill supplemented his statement with these words. Quote, in making this demand, I do not mean to reflect on the counsel for Frank. It was testified before me that Detective Burns had removed the Carter woman. Will bring woman back. It is said that immediate efforts will be made to bring the missing woman back to Atlanta. She is now in New Orleans, where, according to a letter she recently wrote relatives in the city, she is working with the William J. Burns Detective Agency. This letter was read to Judge Hill by Solicitor Dorsey Monday afternoon. Anna Maud Carter is the Negress who accuses Jim Conley of having confessed to her the murder of Mary Fagan. A literal mountain of evidence was introduced by the Solicitor Monday to show that she had conspired with George and Jimmy Wren in Fulton Jail to frame up on Conley. Other testimony was adduced to show that she had told friends and relatives upon being released from jail that she had tried to quote End quote, Conley, and that he had firmly maintained that Leo Frank was the murderer. Regarding the Carter woman, attorney Arnold was asked by a reporter for the Constitution if lawyers for Frank or the Burns agents would seek to bring the woman back to the city. Mr. Arnold smiled in reply, saying that he did not know as yet. A surprising new phase of evidence that arose Monday was an affidavit from Mrs. Hattie Waits, the young wife of J.M. Waits, who swears that on the morning of the day Mary Fagan was slain, she saw Leo Frank and Jim Conley talking to each other sometime between 10 and 11 o'clock, and that they were apparently engaged in earnest conversation. This evidence was introduced to bear out in part that portion of Conley's testimony bearing with a meeting he swore he had with Frank on the morning of the 26th at Forsyth and Nelson Streets when Frank is alleged to have instructed him to come to the pencil factory that noon to, quote, watch, end quote, for him. Mrs. Waite's affidavit has been kept a secret by the solicitor and created a sensation when it was sprung. Lehan nears contempt. At the very outset of the retrial proceedings, Monday morning, a sensation was created when Dan S. Lehan, Southern Superintendent of the William J. Burns Forces, was practically put under arrest for contempt of court. Following the strenuous examination which he underwent before Solicitor Dorsey, he made a heated tirade against the solicitor's tactics. They were cut short by Judge Hill, however, who ordered him to cease, and who instructed Deputy Sheriff Plenty Minor to take charge of the Burns man. Minor escorted Lehan into an adjoining room, where he remained for some little while. Later, Judge Hill asked the court stenographer to read that part of Lehan's statement, which attacked Dorsey. Attorneys Arnold and Rosser stated that the witness had not intended to be in contempt. Judge Hill ordered the words expunged from the record, called Deputy Minor into the room, and ordered that Lehan be allowed to go his way. Only two witnesses were examined. Lehan and L.P. Eubanks. Mary Rich, the Negress who was alleged by the defense to have made an affidavit in which she stated she saw Jim Conley emerge from the rear of the pencil plant at 2.15 o'clock on the tragedy date, has made an affidavit in which she denies having made the document submitted by the defense. Refused to sign paper. Quote, Sometime recently, end quote, she swears, quote, "Mrs. Lucille Frank and Rabbi Marks and two men came to see me and tried to get me to make an affidavit. The affidavit was not true, and I refused to sign it. Mrs. Frank said to me, "If you will sign this affidavit, you will take the rope from around my husband's neck." I replied that I could not tell a lie, and that to sign the paper would be telling a lie. One man with Mrs. Frank and Rabbi Marks tore off a little piece of the paper that was in his hands. This man was C. W. Burke. He said, You take this paper. I told him that I didn't want the paper, and he said, This will not hurt you, but you keep this paper. It is just for you, so that you will know it when you see it again. I took it and kept it. I showed it in a few minutes afterward to Mr. F. J. Wellborn, a man that I have known a good long time, who was standing by when these people were talking to me. Afterwards, I took the paper to somebody in the office of Solicitor General Hugh N. Dorsey. I have looked at the piece of paper attached to the affidavit signed by F.J. Wellborn, and it looks to me to be about the size and shape of the paper which Burke gave me. Burke also told me that if I got into trouble, I might know the cause of it. End quote. Dorsey presented a number of affidavits dealing with an alleged conspiracy within the county jail between Anna Maud Carter and Dr. George Wren and Wren's brother, Jimmy Wren, to, quote, frame up, end quote, on Jim Conley. Dr. George Wren was a prisoner serving sentence for complicity in the Gilsey Diamond robbery. One angle of this evidence is an affidavit from Frank Reese, an ex-prisoner who lives at 7 Kingsley Street. He was a trustee prisoner in the Tower, worked in the prison laundry, and did odd jobs required of trustees. I have heard Doctor Wren telling Conley that he had been tried, and that he, Conley, could take the Mary Fagan murder on himself, and that it would free Mister Frank," said Reese, "and that Conley could never be tried any more for it. Conley refused to consider this saw them talking. Quote, Wren talked to Fred Perkerson, another prisoner, and myself several times, and tried to get us to agree to go into Conley's cell and come out and claim that Conley had confessed to us. He said we would get lots of money if we did. I knew Annie Maud Carter, and I have seen her and Dr. Wren talking together very often. I saw Annie Maud Carter go to Conley's cell once, and Fred Perkerson called to her that if she went in, she would be locked up. Both Fred and I knew she was crooked, and we cautioned Jim Conley about her. I saw Dr. Wren at one time throw a note to Annie Maud Carter from the second floor. She carried it to Conley's cell, pitching it through the bars at the wing door. When I got out of jail, Dr. Wren came to my house one morning at 7 o'clock with a long white paper, asking me to sign it. I cannot read or write, and I told him I wanted to wait to see what was in the paper. He said that it was just a paper to the effect that I had carried notes from Jim Conley to Annie Maud Carter. I did not know what was in it, and so I wouldn't sign it. He said that, inasmuch as I couldn't write, he'd write it for me. I told him I wouldn't authorize anybody to write for me, nor sign my name to anything unless I was aware of its contents. End quote. Fred Perkerson, the prisoner alluded to in the Reeves affidavit, has signed a statement to the effect that C.W. Burke, the private investigator attached to Luther Z. Rosser's office, and Jimmy Wren, Burr's assistant, and Dr. George Wren, the convict named in Reeves' affidavit, have often conferred with Leo Frank in Frank's cell in the tower. He told a similar story of alleged conspiracy in which Wren figured to frame up on Conley. He swears that Wren told him and Reeves that they were in a position to make a lot of money, and advised them to go into Conley's cell and, upon coming out, pretend that Conley had confessed Mary Fagan's murder. He declares that he asked Wren why Wren himself didn't do this. Wren is said to have replied that he didn't care to get mixed up in the case. Ivy Jones, the Negro from whom the defense, in its new trial motion, purported to have obtained an affidavit recanting his testimony at the trial, has made an affidavit for the solicitor, swearing that the defense affidavit is false and that it is a forgery. Dorsey attacked the defense argument that the note paper on which Conley wrote the murder notes was obtained from the basement, when he introduced a number of affidavits in rebuttal. One of these was from Philip Chambers, an ex-office boy in Frank's employ, who was a witness for the defense at Frank's trial. Nothing Sent to Basement Chambers testifies now that Becker, upon leaving the employ of the pencil factory, moved his desk into Mr. Frank's office, and that it was thereafter used by Frank. He swears that no trash, books, or paper ever stayed down in the basement, and that all order blanks left upon Becker's departure were used by Frank. J.M. Gant makes an affidavit in this phase to the effect that the order blanks were never destroyed and at no time did he ever see any of the scratch-pads sent in the trash to the basement. The trash, Gant swears, was burned with all rubbish every day in the furnace in the basement. Another affidavit bearing on this angle was one made by H. H. Otis, City Fire Inspector, who declares he was forced at numerous times to remind Leo Frank of negligence in keeping the basement regulated in compliance with fire ordinances. He instructed that all trash and rubbish be burned each day. He swears that he heard Frank give Darley, the assistant superintendent, specific instructions to burn all refuse and to see that none of it remained unburned in the basement or anywhere in the factory building. Otis further testifies that such litter was burned under his personal supervision from April 1, 1913. R. M. DeVore a photographic expert attached to the A.K. Hawks Optical Concern, has made an affidavit swearing that he photographed the murder notes for Solicitor Dorsey and that he used a special color plate for the task, sending north for it. He says that, in his opinion, the number on the disputed blank is 1818. He also swears that T.A. Alexander, who recently issued a booklet bearing on the notes, admitted to him that he had instructed the photo engraver who made the plates to, quote, touch them up, end quote, a bit. Much interest was centered around the J.E. Duffy affidavit, which was submitted by Dorsey during the afternoon. Duffy, who is purported by the defense to have renounced his trial testimony, now upholds it and swears that he was induced by agents of the defense to make the recanting document. He says that L.P. Eubanks, the car inspector whom Dorsey grilled on the stand Monday morning, and C.W. Burke had offered him money to sign a false paper and told him that whenever he wanted money, they would furnish him with it. He swears that he has borrowed in the neighborhood of $30 from Eubanks. Quote, On April 30th of this year, end quote, his affidavit reads, Jimmy Wren took me in an automobile over the city carrying me to dinners and cafes and to shows, and then riding me toward Austell, Georgia. I slept all night in the automobile. They brought me back the next day, and when we stopped in front of the Marietta Chair Works on Marietta Street, we were surrounded by a crowd of Jews, who pressed me with many questions bearing on my testimony. End quote. Lent Duffy money. R.E. Duffy, father of Duffy, has made a statement saying that Eubanks had told him that he was lending Young Duffy money and taking his note for same, but that the father need not worry as his son would never have to pay it back. Young Duffy has been released from prison, in which he was lodged Friday night on an attachment issued by Judge Hill. C. Brutus Dalton, who the defense alleged some time ago had made an affidavit repudiating his testimony at the trial, was brought to Atlanta Monday by Detective John Black from Fort Myers, Florida. His new affidavit, which was introduced by Dorsey in the afternoon, sprang a decided sensation. Dalton says that he was visited in Fort Myers by C.W. Burke, who asked for his signature to a document which was to be presented before the Pardon Board of Georgia in order to prevent the hanging of Frank. Dalton says he was offered $100 and a ticket to Atlanta for his signature. Burke, Dalton swears, had a typewritten copy of some statement. He, according to the witness, read a part of it in which nothing was stated about a reversal of testimony. He signed the document, he states, expecting to receive the $100. That night, however, when he went to the hotel, Burke had disappeared, he states, and no $100 was in evidence. Dalton's affidavit contains part of his trial testimony, which he upholds, in which he tells of having seen Frank carry girls and women into the dressing rooms after he had been seen hugging and kissing them. Dalton also swore to having carried beer and other drinks for Frank in Frank's office, where the latter, he alleges, was entertaining girls and young women. An attack was made upon the testimony of Mrs. M. Jaff, the wife of the Mitchell Street jeweler who made an affidavit telling of having seen Frank at one thirty o'clock on the streets on the murder date. An affidavit was presented from Detective Bass Rosser, who swears to having gone to Jaff's jewelry shop in answer to a call to police headquarters. The husband, according to Rosser's affidavit, was seeking the aid of the police to find his wife, who he said had run away to Birmingham to meet another man, and upon departing had taken a ring belonging to a customer. Mrs. Jaff, it is stated in the detective's testimony, later was returned and admitted having taken the ring. This affidavit, however, was not admitted by Judge Hill. The affidavit of Reverend C. B. Ragsdale, the preacher who accuses defense and burns agents of bribery, accuses Arthur Thurman, his attorney, of having engineered the conspiracy against Conley, in which the pastor was the most important figure. Thurman, he states had been his attorney for some time and was acquainted with his financial status. Several days before the Ragsdale affidavit was made public, Thurman had informed the minister, Ragsdale swears that he could make a lot of money out of the Frank case if Ragsdale would frame a statement to be used in Frank's defense. Ragsdale swears that he arranged such a statement and submitted it to Thurman, who pronounced it weak in spots, but who said that he could strengthen it wherever necessary. Later, he says, Thurman told him that he had got a Negro to corroborate him. The Negro, however, fell down, according to the minister's statement, and Thurman asked that someone else be procured who could assist the preacher in his tale. Ragsdale swears that he got R. L. Barber to make a similar statement. The, frame-up, end quote, was arranged to perfection, Ragsdale swears, and four or five subsequent conferences were held over the matter. On April 24th, Ragsdale testified C. C. Tetter, the Burns man, was called into the affair and carried Ragsdale to the Burns office in the Henley Building, where he was introduced to Dan S. Lehan. Lehan, Ragsdale states, took the minister to the office of attorney Luther Z. Rosser, where a stenographer took his, quote, framed, end quote, statement. The affidavit then goes on to state how $200 was procured by Ragsdale and $100 by Barber through the agencies of Thurman and Tetter. The name of Lehan also figures prominently in the alleged transaction. Helen Ferguson swore that she was enmeshed by the defense agents by Jimmy Wren, who, under the assumed name of, quote, J.W. Howard, end quote, made love to her, spent money lavishly on her, finally proposed marriage and carried her to C.W. Burke, whom he introduced under the guise of his father, her prospective father-in-law, at which time her affidavit was obtained. Ferguson Affidavit Her now affidavit for the state follows, Georgia, Fulton County, personally appeared before the undersigned Miss Helen Ferguson, who, on oath, after being duly sworn, deposes as follows. Since the Frank trial last summer, in which I gave testimony that was against Leo M. Frank, two attempts have been made either to get me to leave the city or change my testimony. The first by money, and the second by having a young man make love to me and offering to marry me. Shortly after the trial, I left home one morning to go to my work, and on a street corner, a young man, who was a Jew, came up to me and said he would give me $100 and pay my board and all expenses if I would leave Atlanta. As Frank was going to get a new trial sometime soon, he said, I refused and turned and walked away. That's about all he had time to say to me. He had a light mustache and light curly hair and looked like a man about 30 years old. The second attempt, after the money offer failed, occurred in December, during the two weeks just before Christmas. I was working then at the Clark Woodenware Company on Foundry Street, having left the Marcus Loeb Overall Company because I was afraid of the foreman whom I worked under, Mr. Levin, who tried before the trial to get me to swear for Frank and not against him, so that I was afraid of him and left soon afterward. When I left my work at the Clark Woodenware Company one afternoon in December, I was walking down the street with another girl, when a young man, whom I afterwards found out to be Jimmy Wren, stepped up to us and said, "'Howdy-do, Miss Ferguson?' I said, "'I don't remember you.' And he answered, "'This is Mr. J.W. Howard. Don't you remember when you worked at Blocks?' I worked there, too, and wanted to meet you then, but didn't have a chance. And so that was the way I met him. A night or two later, he took me to the show and also met me several other times, "'and was always mighty nice to me, "'just like a young man is, you know. "'I hadn't known him more than two days "'before he began to make love to me. "'A few days after I met him, "'we were walking uptown together "'when we met a big, heavy fellow, "'with a big, round face, "'who was standing on the corner, "'and whom I have since found out "'was Mr. C.W. Burke, the detective. "'Jimmy Wren, or Howard, "'as he called himself at that time, "'stopped and introduced me to him "'as his father.' We stood on the corner and talked for several minutes. The father got to talking about the couple who were caught spooning on the Capitol steps, and from this he began to say awful things about the police, saying they were no good and that the city detectives were crooks and other such things. He said something about wanting me to make a news statement in the Frank case, and I said, No, sir. And then, as we turned to leave, he said to Mr. Howard, Bring her up to the office tonight. I want to talk to her anyhow. That night, Mr. Howard came out to the Clark Woodenware Company at 9 o'clock, when I got off from work, to take me to town to see a show. There were about half a dozen of us girls who did extra work until 9 o'clock, a few nights for a while before Christmas. Jimmy was making real love to me that night, and a lot about caring for me and wanting me to marry him, but he kept on talking about wanting me to sign an affidavit about the Frank case first. I didn't want to go up to any office with him, but he insisted so strongly and said his father was waiting for us, that he just made me go. He took me up in that big, gray-colored building on Broad Street. They call it the Grant Building, I believe. He took me up the elevator, and there in an office his father was waiting for us. I remember seeing the name J.H. Porter on the door of the office. They asked me again to change my statement in the Frank case and say it was some other time that Mr. Frank had refused to give me Mary Fagan's pay envelope than the time I said it was. They said that Frank was an innocent man and that everybody knew it. But I said I had told nothing but the truth and wasn't going to change it. And then Jimmy said, Well, I'd hate to be the main one to put the rope around Frank's neck. And I said I couldn't help that since I had only told the truth. Then he talked some more about loving me so much, saying he wished I'd do it for him, until I was worried a good deal and wishing I was out of there. While we were talking about the Frank case in this way, I happened to tell them that I was afraid of Jim Conley. They then dropped the talk about my evidence and fixed up an affidavit for me to sign about Conley, which I signed, in order to satisfy them. I simply said in this how Conley had approached me the Saturday before Mary Fagan was killed. "'when I was picking up some boxes and had offered to help me, "'and I had dropped the boxes and run "'because I was afraid of him. "'When we got that affidavit fixed up, we left. "'It seemed like we had been there an awful long time. "'Jimmy brought me home in an automobile that night "'and kept on talking love to me, "'and just before we got home he tried to kiss me "'and I hit him in the mouth. "'That seemed to cool him down "'and he brought me to the door and said goodbye. "'I have never seen him but once since that night.' I found out a few days later that his real name was Jimmy Wren and not Howard. I found it out from a number of persons who had seen me with him and who knew all about his working at the National Pencil Factory and working with the lawyers and detectives for Frank. It was several weeks afterward before I found that his father was the detective, C.W. Burke. When they decided that the time had come for giving my affidavit to the papers, a newspaper reporter came out to the house to see me about it. He told me how the affidavit had been given out through Burke, and described him to me, and the description made it very plain that he was none other than the father. I also learned, then, that the office of J.H. Porter was up in the Grant Building, right next to Mr. Luther Rosser's. I have found out in other ways that the father was Mr. Burke, many other people describing him to me very exactly. I know I could recognize Jimmy's father again the minute I saw him. Helen Ferguson sworn to and subscribed before me this 7th day of April 1914 signed L. L. Hildebrand notary public Fulton County Georgia End quote. The examination of Dan Lehan was the first proceeding on the program of Monday session Lehan was asked numberless questions regarding his operations on the Frank case the source of his pay and of the Ragsdale incident it was at the close of his interrogation that he came near suffering punishment for contempt of court. Here is how the stenographer recorded his final words verbatim quote, Can I make a statement, Judge, in reference to this case? End quote. Quote, yes, you may make an explanation if you desire, End quote. answered Judge Hill. Quote, I am an American citizen. End quote retorted Lehan. Quote, and I have been in the police business for twenty years. These questions asked here are the most outrageous questions I have ever been asked. End quote. He was cut short by the judge, who said, quote, You cannot state that. It is not admissible. End quote. Quote, This is the most outrageous treatment, end quote, continued the witness. Quote, From the district attorney, end quote. Again, he was stopped. Judge Hill saying, quote, "You cannot state that, Mister Witness. I will have to send you to jail if you persist." End quote. Quote, I don't mean any discourtesy to the court, any disrespect to the court," End quote, said Lehan. Lehan, in naming the source from which he obtained money, frequently mentioned the name of Herbert J. Haas, an attorney for the defense. He said that Boots Rogers was employed by the Burns Agency and that Carlton C. Tedder was also attached to the Burns forces. He told of having paid C. C. Tedder $250 on his salary a short time previous to the Ragsdale affidavit. He said the money had been obtained from Haas, from whom he procured most of his fees. He stated that the fees and money turned over to him by Haas were in check form and that the checks were turned over to C.E. Sears, superintendent of the Burns Agency. The retrial hearing was adjourned by Judge Hill Monday afternoon at 2 o'clock. It will be resumed this morning at 10 o'clock. End of newspaper article. Leo Frank's pardon and crucifixion. Quote, I don't know who is guilty, but I do know that the man who murdered Mary Fagan ought to be hanged. End quote. Leo M. Frank. Quote. Finally, though, the men who threw themselves into the scheme were motivated by neither bloodlust nor anti-Semitism. Rather, they felt obliged to accept an urgent and weighty responsibility. End quote. Steve Oney. For 16 months after Leo Frank's August 25, 1913, murder conviction, his legal team trekked from court to court seeking to win him a new trial. They were buoyed by a growing international outcry impressively engineered by Albert Lasker that included a massive blitzkrieg of propaganda and letter-writing and petition campaigns. But by December of 1914, Frank's appeals had failed in every venue, Rejected time after time by judges who found his trial to be fair and the verdict to be properly rendered. That's when the United States Supreme Court agreed to consider the case. And there can be no doubt that the inside connections that Frank's attorney, Louis Marshall, had with the High Court helped secure that hearing. Marshall prepared Frank's legal brief, which claimed that 103 errors in Judge Roan's Atlanta courtroom obligated the High Court to grant Leo Frank a new trial. Marshall focused in on highly technical points of law and procedure that mirrored in its exasperating technicality Leo Frank's disastrous courtroom statement. Frank's tedious and grating rehearsal of the factory's administrative minutiae to a jury expecting to hear of his actions on the day of the murder most assuredly contributed to an adverse verdict. And even with many months of hindsight, Marshall's brief was hundreds of pages of the same trifling details and seemed targeted more toward delay than resolution. Proof of its utter ineffectiveness in defending Leo Frank is how little of Marshall's brief is quoted by Frank's advocates in the many books and articles constituting the Leo Frank case literature of the last century. Remarkably, not a single one of the 103 complaints addressed any of the obvious racial injustices of the Georgia court system. Marshall, who in later years would help fashion the NAACP's legal strategy, did not complain of an all-white jury, or an all-Gentile jury for that matter, or of a Jim Crow legal system that was so patently racist that it almost perfectly prefigured the legal structure of the coming Nazi regime. None of those issues bothered the Frank legal team, even when they had the opportunity to raise them in front of the nation's highest court in Washington, D.C., far away from any Southern influence. Though the, quote, Negro testimony, end quote, theme constituted the core of Leo Frank's public relations strategy, Louis Marshall was not foolish enough to take that unconstitutional absurdity to the high court. Rather, at the core of Marshall's 103-point Supreme Court argument were two main themes. One, the trial was, quote, mob-dominated, And two, the insignificant technical point that the entire trial should be invalidated because Frank himself was not in the courtroom when the verdict was read. Both the defense and the prosecution had agreed to the arrangement whereby Frank would be absent for security reasons, and Prosecutor Dorsey gave his consent only after Frank's attorneys specifically agreed that Frank's absence would not be used as a basis for appeal. But now, a full six months after the verdict, Louis Marshall reneged on that agreement and actually claimed that Frank's own lawyers had violated their client's right to due process. Marshall's brief also went after the jurors. He presented an affidavit from a dentist named W.L. Ricker, who swore that he had heard a, quote, bitter, end quote, A.H. Hensley say, quote, they are going to break that Jew's neck. End quote. One, Leon Harrison, swore to hearing from juror M. Johanning, this highly improbable pre-trial statement. Quote, I believe he did kill the girl, and if by any chance I get on the jury that tries him, I'll try my best to have him convicted. I think he is guilty, and I would like to be in a position where I could help break his damned neck. End quote. Luther Rosser said of juror Hensley that quote he stinks, end quote. his ballot quote, a miserable, dirty farce. End quote. But Dorsey claimed to have three affidavits from citizens who had heard Hensley before trial express his belief in Frank's innocence. In fact, both Hensley and Johenning were approved for the jury by Frank and his lawyers. Both jurors emphatically denied Marshall's claims. In fact, it was shown that during the jury's deliberations, it was Hensley who had insisted that the jurors take their time in bringing in a verdict. He was the only juror to vote against the guilty verdict, when the jurors were first polled. Ultimately, once he was satisfied that the jury had not rushed to judgment, he joined the others and voted, quote, guilty, end quote. Each of the affiants swearing to Hensley's anti Jewish prejudice appears to be an example of defense purchased, perjured testimony. But Marshall hung his hat on the issue of Frank's absence from the courtroom, ostensibly to protect him from quote a mob. End quote. He argued that it represented a violation of the quote due process end quote, clause of the fourteenth Amendment of the US Constitution which not insignificantly was ratified in 1868 to protect the black former slaves from states interfering with their fundamental rights as American citizens. That Marshall used a constitutional provision designed to equalize the legal condition of the black American, even as Frank based his entire public relations strategy on the unacceptability of, quote, Negro testimony, end quote, is one of the supreme hypocrisies of the Leo Frank case. Marshall had to resort to arguing that flimsy legal premise only because Frank's own courtroom lawyers had obliterated any claim they might make of racial prejudice, they alone having openly and repetitively voiced anti-Black racial bigotry. Marshall's ploy might be compared to a knocked-out boxer who later tries to invalidate his defeat because he was unconscious when the referee declared him the loser the justices were similarly unimpressed another of the many shameless ironies was that frank's jewish attorney henry a alexander who had so strenuously pressed the unacceptability of quote, "negro testimony" end quote, cited the calvin v texas case on frank's behalf it said quote, "the accused must be tried and convicted legally and Though he be a Negro, he must be tried in precisely the same manner as if he were a white man. And we cannot strain the law, even in the estimate of a hair, because the appellant is a Negro. End quote. Be with us again next time when we present the next chapter of The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews, Volume 3 The Leo Frank Case The Lynching of a Guilty Man. Prepared by the Historical Research Department of the Nation of Islam, Chicago, Illinois. Copyright 2016 by Latimer Associates. All rights reserved. Published in audiobook form by the American Mercury with permission of the Historical Research Department of the Nation of Islam.